uh, one sibling comes in and does a great dance move or something she's invented or, you know, is doing a backflip. And I'll say, like, wow, you really got a talent for doing those backflips. And then the other sibling will say, well, you didn't notice, but I was doing backflips too. Or saying, well, I could, you're, that's just because she's younger. I could have done backflips, like, when I was that age. Welcome to the Medical Dads Podcast, a parenting podcast by two dads who happen to be medical doctors. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Harmon, a pediatric emergency room physician and father of four from Ottawa, Ontario. I want to be in the podcast. Daddy, do you know what you're doing? Can I play a game on your computer? Daddy, where's mommy? And I'm your other co-host, Dr. David Shu, a family doctor from Toronto, Ontario. Welcome aboard. Right, we're back for another episode of Medical Dads. That's right, back and ready to compete with any rival who dares stand against us in the realm of podcasting, especially if it's a sibling. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible, terrible, terrible introduction today, (laughs) Stu. Now, if you listen carefully, there is no other sound in my house right now. Because lo and behold, the children have gone back to school. They they came home in mid December for ostensibly for Christmas vacation, and now we're almost in February, and they made it back to school. That's right. Viewers were on the edge of their seats, or I, I guess I should say, listeners were on the edge of their seats after our last podcast to find out did <laughs> Doctor Shu send his kids back to school? And so the answer is a resounding yes. <laughs> resounding yes for the moment. It it seems like most like. They, my kids go to a private school and they had the option of either going or staying home, right? And, and for this month, at least, it's pretty fluid. They said, parents, you know, you can opt in, opt out, kind of, there's no time to make, have to make a decision by. I know like in public schools in Ontario, they kind of said, you're either in or out, and then there'll be these dates where you can come back in. You can't just be in and out. For whatever it's worth, there's four kids in one of my kids' class. There's four in the other. So... All in all, we feel reasonably safe at this point in these miniaturized schools that they're going There's back to. Four kids in each class, <laughs> and how would how many would there normally be? About twenty-five in each class. So this is just parents who are decided they're going to keep their kids home. Yeah, because of the pandemic, and you know, to be fair, we kept our kids home for all of last year. Like the, our <laughs> listeners might remember this, like last year from twenty the twenty 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 one school year. The school year did run for many kids in Ontario, for most kids, yeah. right? And and the school year did end prematurely in March, and people had to stay home from March onwards. Yeah. But my kids stayed home the whole year. So I feel like this is just a little bit evening it out. You know, we're, we're making things a little bit fair. Like this, they, the other people had their chance. This is our turn to be in school. Did your kids go back to school on Monday as planned? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> no. So we were all ready. And then suddenly we hear that there's going to be a major storm, right? Yeah. And I don't, you, I've been tr- schlepping my kids to school for the last couple of years in Toronto. And, you know, prior to that, I've been working in Toronto for many years. Like when they say blizzard and winter storm, I'm not really phased by that. I know that eventually we'll make it into the office that day, yeah. right? And I know that the school's had a few snow days. But I had never in Toronto heard the term 40 centimeters. Like that, that was new to me. Like I've heard 15, 20. Like Toronto's in a panic at 15 centimeters, right? Well, then they threw out this number 40. And I was like, what on earth are we going to do with that? You shovel it. That's what you do with that. That's what we do here in Ottawa. <laughs> you absolutely do not shovel it when you've already prepaid a Chinese shoveling company to come do it for you. Like this, this storm... And, and it's always those storms that come overnight that are the big problem, right? Because they've dumped the snow and now you have to get out for work, maybe. Like yeah. when they got to 40 centimeters, it was like, we're not even going to bother going. And one of my, one of the receptionists at our office, who's pretty new at our office, I knew she was coming from downtown. Um, so I messaged, I'm like, are you going to work? She's like, I'm, I'm, I'm on my way to the subway station, right? And, and of course, great. Toronto Transit Commission, the subway is running early in the morning, yeah. right? So she and another girl who are both taking public transit get to the office. Yeah. Lo and behold, Dr. Shu forgot to give the new staff keys. So they're at the oh. office, but they cannot get in the door, <laughs> right? Oh, man. D- Dr. Shu is also trapped in his own house because his Chinese shovelers have not showed up, yeah. right? And so 
I, my wife's like, don't worry. Like, I'm like, should I, should I try to take the van out? I probably can get over there. Like I can drive the van. Like it's a tank and get over there. Yeah. And my wife's like, no, no, don't bother. You're probably going to get stuck, which is true. Like cars were stuck everywhere that day. Yeah. Um, and she's like, well, the superintendent, when he gets to the building, just hit the superintendent and unlock it. They have a, they have a master key. They can unlock anything. I called the superintendent. He's like, sure, no problem. I'm just on Leslie. Leslie is the street that the clinic is on, right? So I'm like, okay, just text me when you're there. I I have some people you need to let in. An hour passes. No word from the super, right? I message him. I'm still here on Leslie. (laughs) In his car? He's walking. In his car. Okay. Right. So end of it all, 2 p.m., he messages me. I've arrived, doc. (laughs) I'm at the office. Right, five hours of bad. There's two frozen bodies on the doorstep, but do you know anything about that, Doctor Shu? He sent me a photo from where he was. He was literally like half a kilometer from the office, stuck on the highway, getting off like the Leslie ramp. Right, and I was like, "Wow!" Luckily, I sent the I sent the staff home a few hours earlier, but but it did not work out because one of them could no longer get home at that point because. Because the subway had closed itself a few hours later. Like she was able to come uptown, cannot go back downtown. So it was a brutal welcome to your new job. Welcome to Canada moment for our new staff. Oh, man, what a disaster. But didn't people know ahead of time that the storm was coming? Because the storm you're talking about, most of our listeners will have experienced the same thing. Because this Mm -hmm. was a storm across the the entire uh, eastern uh, North America. So everybody on on January 17th uh, had a big wallop of weather. But I mean, we we got a message from the hospital where where I work telling us, you know, tomorrow we're expecting 40 centimeters of snow. So plan ahead, uh, plan accordingly. (laughs) We did. We knew it was coming like that night. That night at around nine o'clock, my wife came in from something. I think she went to drop off something at her mom's. And then I said, leave the garage door open because the storm is coming. I'm going to put the cars in the garage and some of our toboggans are blocking. So I need to go move it. I walk outside to do this task and it struck me that it was so warm. It was like minus five degrees, but compared to the minus 20 that had happened the day before when my, I had taken my kids to the outdoor rink, I was like, it's so balmy outside. And it was clear. <laughs> it hadn't started snowing yet. I was yeah. like, I have to go to work tomorrow, but I can put off my work a little bit. I can, I can instead of rearranging the garage, I can grab my skates and head to the to, to the ice rink. I think nobody's gonna be there. It's Sunday night, right? And indeed, there was nobody there. The lights were on. It was just me, my stick, a puck, and I just skated around for like half an hour. It was unbelievable. It, and you had no inkling that that this major storm was about to start in like thirty minutes, right? Because I got home. And then maybe like half an hour later, I looked outside and the snow was starting to come down at that point. But I did the fact get that it in. Was warming up is the sign that the storm is coming, Doctor <laughs> Shu. It, you don't get a giant snowstorm like that when you get temperatures like minus forty, minus fifty. That's too True. cold for the snow to fall. True. There is a term for that: the calm before the storm. Right. I I thought that alluded to when my wife isn't making any noise that she's about to blow up about me about something. But it's actually a weather phenomenon. I love that you thought your your snow shoveling service was coming to your house. Where in Toronto, when they hear forty centimeters are coming, those guys are like, oh, "Shovel in that weather? That's a suicide <laughs> mission. You're on your own." <laughs> well, I didn't even think they were going to come on that first day. Like yeah. I thought, realistically, by six p.m. would be a reasonable thing. I'm not even going to bother these guys, yeah. right? But six p.m. is reasonable, and they did come by six p.m. the next yeah. day. <laughs> <laughs> Money well spent. Did any of your patients show up at your clinic? Patients did not show up. I mean, right now, because of COVID, it's mostly virtual anyway, again. So that wasn't a huge problem. And I had already assigned some people to work from home that day anyway. So that kind of worked out. I did feel bad for the two staff who came all the way there and went all the way home. And then it took them forever. Like, this is that that part was kind of absurd. Yeah, that, uh, that reminds me of the last time we had a big snowstorm in Ottawa. Uh, where the resident doesn't show up for his shift, uh, even though he's had plenty of advanced warning. And he's mm. texting me uh, a picture of the of the weather website saying that there's extreme weather warning as justification <laughs> for why he doesn't come to work. Uh, meanwhile, the medical student 
realizing that there was going to be a snowstorm and that travel by vehicle would be difficult, got up an hour early and walked <laughs> to the hospital from where he was. He walked for an hour in the snow. To get I don't there. know. If, if your subordinate is going to text you a picture of why they're not at work, the t- picture better show like a mashed up vehicle, right? Or, or actually the car is stuck in the snowbank, right? Don't send me a picture of them on the internet showing a storm. I can go to the internet and see the storm too. The, the picture he sent actually had a tweet uh, from some website of somebody's vehicle in the snow, but not his. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, millennials, gotta love it. <laughs> Look, uh, here's a picture of a volcano that exploded in Hawaii. Uh, obviously, <laughs> I can't come into work today. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Anyways, bottom line is, with all this brouhaha going on with the weather, suddenly our kids are not back in school. Like We've been waiting weeks for this January 17th date. And suddenly Mother Nature's like, nah, uh, hold on to your horses. You know, I'm still in control of this thing. And you really what? think if Mother Nature just wanted to intercede on our behalf, she could yeah. end COVID by keeping us all at home for two weeks. That's th- what the medical dads are petitioning for. Uh, but this week is not actually uh, about COVID and snowstorms, right? Uh, remind the audience what we're talking about this week. <laughs> we're going to talk about sibling rivalry. We, we felt like we've talked about COVID enough. People are omicroned out or <laughs> omicroned out at this point. And I think we need to talk, we need to talk about just some regular parenting issues. And, and this is one that Stu has had on the front of his brain for a long time. He's mentioned it several times. Why don't we break this into the good, the bad, and the ugly? And we'll try to hit on all the pertinent points of siblings and sibling rivalry as we go through this list. We'll start with the good stuff about siblings. So both you and I have siblings. Well, siblings or sibling rivalry? Are we talking about the upsides of there being a bit of rivalry? Or are we just talking about siblings well, in general? Well, we're talking about siblings in general, but specifically we're talking about the rivalry part, right? But I feel like okay. for the for the people out there who don't even have siblings, we should we should discuss what it's like to have a sibling somewhat under the good, presumably. Well, I, I suppose imagine having uh, friends who have to be your friends. <laughs> Uh, who there's there's sort of a, a, at least as when you're a child, there's sort of a contract that's saying, you know, this person is your is your friend no matter what, which means you can fight with them, you can get angry at them, you can say horrible things that can't be taken back <laughs> to them, uh, and yet at the end of the day, uh, you, you know you're going to bed and waking up and this person's still going to be in your house and your automatic friend. As an adult, that sounds terrible. And we should probably move that from the good category to the ugly. Because as an adult, if that person is in your life, you're trying to ex- exit them from your life as quickly as possible. <laughs> well, uh, there's a lot of analogies between siblings and spouses, actually, <laughs> when it comes to this idea of somebody who you're at this level of your relationship where you do things that you wouldn't actually do with another person because they'd never forgive you <laughs> or you'd be worried about what they would think about you. Right. Um, and I, uh, this isn't me who first thought of this analogy of siblings and uh, spouses, but I, I read it somewhere and I'll, I'll touch on it again later. But it is true. So we'll get more to it as we talk about the bad, presumably. But the good part about it is that thing where you kind of have this relationship with a person or a couple other people that goes beyond just regular day to day blow ups and annoyances. Yeah. Right. And that's a useful lesson to learn in life, because if you don't have siblings, and you, you get to this stage as an adult where you get annoyed at somebody, right, a friend or something, and you don't have any context for understanding that, well, this is just like your sibling getting mad at you or you getting mad at them, and it's over three days from now, right? You, sometimes as, yeah. as adults, we get into this tunnel vision where we're saying, well, that person has offended me to a point that it's unforgivable, right? When you have siblings yeah. and, and parents and any other close relationship like marriage and stuff, you realize that all, there's almost nothing that's that bad. Right. And and most things yeah. blow over and it helps to blow things over when the person is in the room next to you all day long. Right. Eventually, you got to go borrow a pencil <laughs> again. Right. You can't just shut them out of your life. Right. One of the problems with friends that I, I find is that with friendship, it can be a bit fickle because it's easy to tune them out. Right. You just you don't have to call them. You don't have to hang out. Right. And maybe you hung out yeah. twice a year anyway. So what's dropping those two nights? Not a big deal. Right. So little things can blow up yeah. with friendships. But siblings, because of the amount of time that you spend together and the, the years of mileage that you put into it, eventually you realize all that yeah. stuff's not, not important. Right. Hopefully, hopefully not yeah. in all cases. Like when you watch your kids and see how they interact and get along, don't you sometimes want to say to them, hey, look, 
what you just said to your brother or what you just did to your sister, would you actually do that with your friends? If you're out with your friends, would you do that? No, you wouldn't because you'd be worried that they're not going to be your friend anymore. And I think that's the thing with difference with siblings is you're not worried that they're not going to be your friend or your sibling anymore because you know they're going to be. Uh, at the very least, you know they're going to be your it's, sibling. It, it's <laughs> no also a say. relationship where I think you can be pretty close to your authentic self because the person's around all the time. And so eventually there's no pretense of pretending to be somebody that you're not, right? Which with friends at yeah. school, you're, you know, even if you're really tight, it's, there's still, you're always showing them your best behavior or certain aspects of yourself. But yeah. with people inside your own home, it's not like that as much, right? And, and I guess the, uh, the natural comparison is to compare what it's like to have a sibling versus what it's like your relationship with your own parents. And I think the big difference obviously is mm. the age difference, like having a peer or someone who's a near peer to you, right, that you can be authentic with is a little bit different from your parents who as authority figures and, you know, people trying to raise you. That's that's a whole different kind of relationship. Yeah, it's true. Your parents know you in a way that nobody else does, but so do mm -hmm. your siblings. They know you in a way that even your parents don't right. don't know you. Right. I, I have read in various places where people say that the closest relationship they have in their lifetime is actually with their sibling, more so than with their parents. Right. And that the loss of a sibling can be much more devastating than the loss of a parent in many ways for, for children. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would think so. I would think so. Uh, I mean, uh, presuming that everybody has a normal lifespan, you will probably spend actually more of your life with mm -hmm. your sibling than you will right. with your parents. If you stay in the good. Right. We're still dealing with the good relationships. <laughs> That's right. And. Well, I was going to say a little bit about sibling rivalry. Is there good to the rivalry part? Absolutely, of absolutely. So it's natural when you have multiple kids that they're maybe not even consciously, but subconsciously comparing themselves to one another, right? Whether they're the same age, whether one's older than the other, there's this going to be this natural, like, okay, they're in grade five. They did this in grade five. What should I be doing when I get to grade four, right? And, and these comparisons are abound in yeah. families, right? And some parents take yeah. it too far and are pushing the kids, like, look at what your look at what your brother did, right? You should be at least doing that, right? But yeah. even if you even if the parent is deliberately doing their best to avoid that, avoid taking sides, because kids are very sensitive yeah. to that kind of thing. But even if parents avoid it, the kids yeah. subconsciously or consciously are comparing themselves anyway, right? And sometimes it's without judgment, but it's just to give themselves a bar of something to know that, well, that's that's what's appropriate. That's what's good behavior. That's what's bad behavior, right? And that bar is always being yeah. reset on a regular basis with a sibling. In some ways, that's not a bad thing, right? Especially if you have like, you know, it depends on what we're talking about, but in, ter in terms of academic performance, behavior, right? You have another person modeling yeah behaviors for this person for better or for worse and in the good examples you know one high achieving kid can lead to other kids following that example right so that's definitely the good part about rivalry like you you get you get someone to set the bar for you right and i've seen a lot of these examples yeah. where in a family like one sibling does something like Stu here goes to medical school and lo and behold, his younger brother shows up at the same school, right? Was it one or two years later, right? <laughs> Don't tell me sibling rivalry is not involved hey. in that particular scenario playing itself out. Well, I don't know if it's a rivalry in the sense of, of my brother feeling he has to outcompete me or do better. Um, but I think in that example, there's certainly something to the idea of you know, I wouldn't have thought I could do this or that this is a thing to do. But then, look, my siblings do it. So, so yeah, it doesn't seem so difficult or unachievable when my sibling's doing it. Right. In fact, it seems ridiculously easy. If that bloke can get into Queen's University, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting on the next bus. <laughs> I'm sure there was some element of him thinking, well, if Stuart could get into med school, then I should be running the place in a couple of years. You know, it's, it's the idea of having a rival in general. The idea of having somebody who pushes you to try a little harder or to, to do a little better because you're not just trying to beat your own personal best, but you have somebody pushing mm -hmm. you to, to, to beat theirs. Now, I find that with, with rivalries and kids, age is a big thing. And you always hear parents talk about this, but if the age of the two kids is too close, sometimes the rivalry can get a little bit too hot. Do you agree with that? Well, I would say uh, 
it comes with the fact that you're closer in a, in a way to somebody when they're your own age. So if you have a sibling your own age, you are much more likely to be mm-hmm. really good friends with that sibling, for sure. Um, but then, of course, because you're really good friends with them, then also the uh, the uh, expectation that two siblings can do what the other person mm-hmm. could do is is that much more intense. So what's a good age gap to have then? Like, what's an age gap where you guys can be close, but not too close? Well, I'm not sure there is a... a, a a magic number that balances those two things. I think it's it's more of a trade-off of look, you can't get more of one without without the other. Uh, so uh, my bias is that uh, me and my siblings are fairly close together. So my my brother is a year and ten months younger than me. My sister is a year and ten months older than me. Uh, and then there's one sister who's a bit of the outlier, who's four years older mm-hmm. than the than the sister behind her. Uh, so for me, it really seems like. Yeah, being very close together is a great thing. I think a year and 10 months maybe is the ideal. And my kids are close to that range. Uh, Some of them are a little bit uh, closer than a year and 10 months. um, And the furthest apart is about two years. Wait, I'm confused by the sequence now. Where does the four years difference sister fit into this? So So she's she's five years older than you. The oldest sister was born first. Four years later, Okay. uh, she's about six years older than me. Um, so she came first and then four years later, then came my second sister, uh, then a year and 10 months came me, then a year and 10 months came my younger brother. Yeah. And so, you know, me and my younger brother Mm -hmm. are extremely, extremely close, um, uh, in a way that just wouldn't be possible with my oldest sister because she would have not been in elementary school alongside mm-hmm. me during a lot of the things that my brother would be. We wouldn't have been watching the same TV shows at the same time right. or be interested in the same movies and stuff at the same time. So um, so in that regard, having a sibling who's really close to me, I think is in age is great. Um, but of course, with my oldest sister, there's less of a feeling of uh, having to, to do mm-hmm. better than her when you're growing up at least. Right? When you're when you have a sister who's six years older, no one expects you to beat her in a foot race. Uh, whereas when you have a younger brother uh, who is potentially going to be <laughs> running in the same heat as you in track and field in elementary school, uh, then yeah, the idea that your younger brother is going to beat you that's uh, that's uh, intolerable. But on so, so many levels, motivating right? for the other sibling. I guess motivating for both of you in a way, and I guess that's what we're talking about, really. So apparently this is a common thing. Like this thing, you, this stunt that your brother pulled where he ends up going to medical school, following in your footsteps, is a common phenomenon with siblings. That if one sibling achieves a certain thing in life, suddenly the other sibling does the exact same thing. That, that's the nice thing about siblings. If, if it works yeah. out well, you get two. You get two high achievers, right? And it, it really is true about the paving the way. Uh, not saying that I cleared all the obstacles for my brother to go to med school, but... When I think of myself in school, my sister being a year and 10 months older than me meant that I would have been taking some of the same mm. courses in high school that she took with the same teacher, um, or at least with very similar course material. And just the fact that I had her old notes and stuff to look at made it much easier for me to do well in high school. And nobody really uh, thinks about that very much. So when you're doing well in high school, people aren't really saying like, yeah, you did well, but you know, there's an asterisk to that because you had older siblings who made it easy. Uh, and when you're the oldest sibling doing it all for the first time, nobody's saying, you know, an extra points for the fact that you had to do this with nobody's notes and nothing to help you. So, uh, just a little bit of a appreciation for those older siblings. I'll, I'll put that out there. Uh, so I got to tell you, this this is a funny story. I will not name names, but the people will know who they are. This sib- one sibling following another story. Your brother is not the most egregious example of this. Okay, The most egregious example of this is in my mom's side of the family. My cousin, one of my cousins, super bright, a bit, a bit younger than me, whiz at math. When he's applying to university, his mom's like, Ask me, help him write an essay, right, for MIT, right? So I've helped him write an essay. He gets an MIT, right? Big, big, like, family, you know, glorious moment for the family that someone gets to go to MIT, right? few years pass, his sister comes along, gets into MIT also, right? Yeah. And, uh, and then this was like, whoa, that's pretty impressive. But if you actually followed yeah. them as siblings growing up, she was always doing this to him, right? So when he was small and he learned how to play piano, she learned to play the same songs on her own without without actually having lessons or something, right? So eventually got better than him at that, right? Then in high school, 
My aunt was schlepping him around to take tennis lessons, right? He gets decent at tennis. Guess what sport his sister takes up? Tennis, yeah. same thing, right? Ends up becoming at MIT a, a captain of the school team or something, right? Then after university, older cousin goes off to Chicago, yeah. gets a job in finance and trading, right? With this, with this like company that's very successful. Yeah. A couple years later, she goes to Chicago, gets a job at the same company, right? <laughs> they're not doing the same thing, but they're doing the same. So the story should end there, <laughs> oh, but it wow. gets even better than this. My cousin, the younger one at some point needs to get married, right? Ends up marrying her brother's old roommate, right? They're happily married, right? This yeah. is just literally following your brother's footsteps to a degree that's absurd, yeah. right? I think, you know, for me, when I think back to my, to my younger brother, uh, I can't say that I ever in any way uh, resented or didn't want him following in my footsteps, really. Uh, I mean, at least not outside of when I was maybe like five or six years old. But by the time I got to things like going to medical school, uh, yeah, to have him at medical school with me was was great. I mean, that, that's akin to you're in medical school mm-hmm. uh, and then you find out that your best friend is coming to med school and is going to be there with you as well. Um uh, so there's a lot of examples of me doing something as a kid and then him coming and following. And in fact, my younger brother actually is like st- quantitatively a little bit smarter than I am because right? they do <laughs> IQ testing and stuff on you when you're in, in, in school. Right? You get to find out if you're in the gifted program, stuff like that. And so he actually uh, scored higher than me to get into this uh, the gifted program. You know what I'm talking about when I say the gifted program? <laughs> yeah, I know what you're talking about when you say that. Okay, yeah. So, but I did not uh, know they released the scores. They didn't send the scores to the family, and then you could tape it on your door. <laughs> well, what happened to me is when I was in grade uh, four, uh, one of the teachers that I had, I guess one of her areas of specialty was this type of stuff, working with gifted students and that. And I was not in the gifted program, but she was the teacher who ran the gifted program for that uh, age group. And she thought that maybe I had just missed it, like that that uh, I didn't perform properly on the test that one day that they give it or something like that. So she thought I belonged in that program and arranged for the school to do like a second set of testing on me. So while I was waiting for that testing, I spent a year in that program. And then uh, after I did the test, it took another year for them to sort out the results to tell me if I should be in the program. <laughs> in the meantime, my brother had done the standard test and been, and they just said, oh yeah, by the way, uh, your brother, younger brother, Gavin, he is gifted for sure. He's in the program. <laughs> There's so no question were, about that one. He's, yeah, he's that's in. Right. He, he scored <laughs> you, that well. You <laughs> were still counting your score. Give us some more time. <laughs> that's right. They were busy with the recount for me uh, while my brother was safely in that program. So we were in that program together. Well, I was in the program for a year. Then we were overlapping the program for a year. And then after I'd been doing it for like three years, then they, um, <laughs> they were like, okay, so the final results are in. You are not gifted. Sorry. You're borderline. Wow. You're borderline. Wow. Your, your IQ is borderline, but you're not quite there. Um, but we'll let you play out the rest of the year in the program to save you the humiliation of having to tell everybody that, yeah, you don't belong there. Um, so anyway, what that means for me is that there's many things afterwards where uh, I did something like, uh, for example, we had speech, uh, you know, in, in elementary school back in those days, you had to tell a speech in front of your class. And mm-hmm. then if you did a good job, you would win for your class. And then you could go in front of the school. You could win for your school, and then you could, uh, and then you could go on and do like an inter-school contest, or whatever. So uh, I won that competition for my school in grade eight, which was a big like point of pride, and more than anything anyone in my family had done in that regard before. Uh, and then the next year after I'd graduated from that school, my brother came and did the speech, won for the school, then won for the inter-school, then won like really high for the region, and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I got to say, at that stage of my life, this is when I would have been now 14 years old, um, uh, it would have been hard if my brother was doing all these things at the same time as me and beating me and everything. So if we're saying how close is too close, maybe twins is too close. (laughs) Uh, But the fact that I would do something first and then he would come along and do it and do it better was like, yeah, I am quite fine with that. You know, a year later, after you've done something, you're not really looking to hold on to that record anymore. You've already got as much recognition for that as you're going to get. Uh, and there's a certain pride of being like, yeah, that's my brother. And yeah, yeah, you know, he's carrying on tradition and, and acing it. So that's, that's the way I felt with him from probably about that moment on through to the rest of our medical careers. <laughs> now, in terms of growing up, did your parents do anything to kind of 
prevent you guys from being at each other's throats too much, like to try to tone down the sibling rivalry? Or do you think it just kind of organically played out? Did your parents affect this process in any way? Hmm. I would say when it comes to this type of thing about being cognizant that some, one kid might have to be worried or jealous about what the other kid comes and does after them, uh, as I am, a, I'm not aware of my parents doing much to mitigate that. <laughs> and probably uh, there's even a few things in retrospect they could have done that uh, that that made a, that insight into this might have been even been helpful. Um, <laughs> like what? Uh, that's just looking at my case specifically. And then I think where my sisters are concerned, in retrospect, there's probably definitely things they could have done uh, to, to to mitigate their situation. Well, you got to give us some examples. You can't just leave it like that. <laughs> Well, only in the sense that uh, uh, I, my two sisters are about four years apart in age, mm-hmm. uh, but my the sister who's who's closest to me in age, um, in a lot of ways, was ahead in a lot of things academic, mm-hmm. um, and I think there was a bit of a tendency for my for my dad to. Um, just kind of be quick to label that like, well, that sister is the one who's really advanced and the oldest one who's four years ahead uh, must be slow if the advanced kid is sometimes doing things that uh, mm. uh, like that she struggles to do, uh, which I think really did not uh, take into account just how the, there can be differences in talent uh, and even differences in intelligence and ability uh, that just are going to like manifest differently. Mm-hmm. So the fact that one kid can quickly know answers to math questions uh, doesn't not necessarily mean that the older kid uh, is the lost cause and the and the one after them is mm-hmm. uh, is not. And I'm not saying that that's exactly how my dad or parents portrayed it, <laughs> but I think there are things that that's the way that the the two sisters could certainly have interpreted it, uh, which I think was maybe to the detriment of the uh, of the oldest sister in terms of probably how like what her self-esteem would have been about this type mm-hmm. of stuff at the time. Uh, and probably not good even for the younger sister to um, uh, to get the impression that like, oh yeah, yeah, look, look, I am I'm more valued than this other sibling mm-hmm. because of this or that. So I, which I think played out into their relationship. Stuff that now as adults, we can all look back and say like, oh yeah, clearly, you know, this is how we would do it if we had to do it over again. Um, but I think at the time, uh, uh, if we could go back in time and do it again, I think there'd be things to, to do differently or lessons that I try to impart into my kids, let's say. Well, I guess we should talk a bit about that then. What are the lessons that we impart on our kids? Like in our family, we try to stress that that no one kid is more important than the other. I think everyone is trying to do that, right? Everyone has a communist yeah. approach to siblings as a parent. <laughs> well, a couple of examples that I try to keep in mind at my house. One... Uh, I noticed with my kids, if we give one of them a compliment, you could tell the other kids are already jealous. <laughs> uh, so not to say, oh, uh, to my oldest daughter, your drawings are way better than anybody else's or better than your siblings. Uh, not saying that. But uh, one sibling comes in and does a great dance move or something she's invented or you know, right. is doing a backflip. And I'll say, like, wow, you really got a talent for doing those backflips. And then the other sibling will say, well, you didn't notice but i was doing backflips too <laughs> or saying well i could you're ju- that's just because she's younger i could have done backflips like when i was that age you know stuff like that where i'm always quick to point to the kids look 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 when i'm saying one kid does something good i'm not saying that you don't do it good or that uh, that you aren't as good or even better uh just giving one person a compliment doesn't mean uh, that you aren't also just as good at that particular thing <laughs> Uh, it's just that I'm happening to notice and recognize theirs right now. Um, when you were that age and we're doing backflips, I was also telling you you that your <laughs> backflips were good. Um, yeah. it, recently, this came. You up. think that long answer gets through to your kids, because or they just continue doing as they please? Well, I mean, they're hearing it again and again <laughs> because they're doing it again and again. So hopefully, it, it sinks in. But actually, uh, this happened the other day where one kid did something at school and got recognition for it at school um, and then was feeling, and then the, one of the other kids was saying, well, last year at school, I did the same thing. And, you know, I don't feel like anybody made as big a deal about it. <laughs> and then I actually was told them the story about when I was in uh, grade uh, three, I think. When I was in grade three, we, we had to do storytelling competitions for the class. And I went up and told a story that, um, Oh, sorry, grade two, whatever. 
in grade two, I told a story and I won the story competition for my class. Um, but no one had ever done that in my family before. Um, and so when I told my parents about it, they had no understanding of the significance or the meaning of it. They're just like, okay, great, you won this thing. So then later I went up and I told my story in front of the school because that's what you get to do when you win for the class. Um, the, the next year, my brother went and told the story for his, uh, in front of his class uh, and also won for his class and then got to go in front of the school. And uh, for whatever reason, my parents were so proud of him when he did it that he got a cake. <laughs> One night there was an ice cream cake to celebrate how he got that. And at bedtime that night, I was in my bed super sad and angry and resentful and everything. Um, and my mother didn't even understand why. And then I was like, had this outburst saying, I did the exact same thing last year. And where's my cake? And my mom was just like, well, we didn't know last year. It was a big deal. Now we do. So, so that story, so I told that, that story does not feel like it would solve your children's problem at this moment. The, the point of the story when I was telling it to my kids, and I always have to explain the point of these stories to my kids in much the same way I have to explain it to you now, because apparently the story, the points are never self-evident. But I was explaining to the kids that I understand that uh, you know one kid can do something and can get a lot of praise for it, and you could do the exact same thing and not get the praise. Um, but that doesn't mean that the thing you did was any less praiseworthy. And sometimes it's just a matter of your parents don't realize until you've done it once that the thing is so special when the other kid comes and, and does it. Uh, anyway, the kids seem to just like hearing about the fact that as, a, as I, as a kid, also um, wasn't perfect and had resentful feelings. Yeah, I guess feelings. you're normalizing that for them, which is good. <laughs> yeah. I'm always trying to get across to them that, look, the fact that you feel this way is not abnormal or is it something you're in trouble or going to get punished for. It, but if you take those feelings and now have a big explosion or lash out at your sibling or do something naughty, in, then there will be some consequence. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Now, there's a flip side to this, which is when you're praising. So you were saying when you praise one kid, the other kids get jealous. But there's a flip side that works in your favor as a parent, which is when you're mad at one kid. Right, and then one kid's in deep trouble. Yes. Suddenly, the behavior of all the other kids improves. Right, there was there was a day last week we were on my daughter's case about something uh, for school, and suddenly, uh -huh. and this was at the dinner table. Suddenly, my son started eating his entire dinner without any prompting, not getting up from the table, not restless, like didn't need reminders, polished off his whole plate. It was amazing. The kids often will try to fill roles. Mm. This is a theory I have based on observation, <laughs> not a scientifically proven thing, but. I do feel like kids will often try to fill roles. So uh, sometimes the first kid comes along and it's just their nature that they're this rule follower, that they never want to see their parents angry. Um, and then if another kid comes along and that role of being the perfect kid is already taken, uh, it's too much to try to compete to take that role. So that's where sometimes the next <laughs> kid comes along is like they're the naughty kid because, well, the first one's the perfect one, so I'm the naughty one. Uh, and the flip side to that is sometimes the first kid comes along and that's just the difficult kid. And when the younger kids see that kid always getting in trouble and always getting yelled at, they're like, well, I'm taking the role then of the kid who's not getting yelled at uh, and gets the praise all the time. I think it ties into what you're talking about. Which is my <laughs> segue into the bad, right? So the good and the bad of sibling rivalry. The bad is there is this situation that happens and it happens all over the world more and more when you know when parents are busy and educated and they don't want lots of children is this only child thing yeah. that happens right and that really throws a wrench into this because now these kids have no sibling rivalry and we see what happens when you have a person with no sibling rivalry <laughs> yeah it, it the rivalry pushes you it's uh, to have to be an only child i mean if it happens it happens but uh, uh i think it does present other challenges to to and how do you how do you try to substitute um, that idea of having that that sibling who's so close to you who you can be mm. yourself with how do you get uh, only children to be able to interact with other children and uh, and form good relationships with other kids without having them have the sibling to practice on? <laughs> I feel like you know? a big thing is when you're an only child you have two parents who whatever attention they're going to spend on the children is all on you, right? Even if, they're, even if they're parents who don't spend a lot of attention on their children, whatever attention they have is all focused on this one kid. But if they have two, yeah. suddenly that attention is halved. You know, on average speaking, it's halved, yeah. right? And that takes a lot of the heat yeah. off you. And I do feel like as parents, we have a tendency to overmanage stuff, 
right? And if you only have one child, that overmanaging gets magnified to a degree that's not helpful, right? And so I always yeah. find that if that when you have a second child, I think we've discussed this at some point, but my whole theory is that the second child is always a little bit more balanced than the first child. In every in every, you know, adult you can think of right now, right? Try to think of the which yeah. one's an older one and which one's their younger sibling and see which one is yeah. a little bit more neurotic and which one's less neurotic. And it seems to be that the that the older one is always more neurotic than the younger one. This doesn't work when you get to you guys, the like number three, number four, but for one and two, I feel like it holds pretty true consistently. <laughs> well, certainly once you start getting down to four, things change and then the gender thing makes mm -hmm. a difference, right? Like uh, my sister, who's the same age gap as me as my younger brother, she doesn't really have to worry uh, as a kid, at least back in the 80s when people were more rigid about their gender roles, that, uh, that for example, what, what happens if her younger brother runs faster mm -hmm. than her? Um, especially as you start to get a little bit older, you, you know, you don't, no girl wants their younger brother going faster than when they're like mm -hmm. five or six. But by the time you start getting to age 12, 13, she's not really worried that I'm going to out-compete her in track and field. They don't even have you run in the same, they don't have boys and girls run against mm -hmm. each other in track and field, or they didn't back then. Uh, and even if they did, it would be easy to say, well, yeah, he's faster, but, you know, he's a boy. He's got the muscle mass. It, it's not the same thing as being outran by your sister. Whereas uh, for my younger brother, that would be a bit different. Um, but just going back to that idea about uh, uh, the parents giving all their attention to one child and then how it changes when you have another one. This was actually the example of uh, making an analogy for children with siblings and uh, adults with spouses that I was thinking of before, because I read this somewhere, how you could think about it like when it's just an only child, you get all this attention from your parents uh, and then you bring in another child. It's not that different than if you were married to somebody and then you brought in another spouse and we're expecting these two spouses <laughs> to get along. It's the same way for, for siblings. I suppose, I suppose. And, and that changes the dynamic of everything for, for the better. Yeah. So I feel like if you don't have that, 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 is, that it's, it, it's, a, it's a thing that only children miss, I think. And, you know, at yeah. the at the very least, you have a built in comrade, right, to get through your parents idiocies, right? Some someone you can bounce yeah. those off is some someone that you can bounce off your parents like idiosyncrasies off is, is a good thing. Now, I want to yeah. talk a little bit about the bad of having sibling rivalry. So sometimes sibling rivalry gets a little bit too heated. Right. And the example mm -hmm. that comes to mind is with my dad. My dad had six siblings. Uh, he was the oldest of seven. So he had six siblings. And in those days in Taiwan, like if you had seven kids, they're, they're spread out over 15 years or something, right? So by the time you get to the youngest one, your relationship with the youngest one is not a rivalry anymore. You're actually like their parent. Like my dad was yeah. uh, 16 years younger than my grandmother. So they, she had him early. And then I think another 15 yeah. years passes maybe before they have number seven. So when, when you talk to number six and number seven about my dad, they're always like, oh, he was like another father, right? Always giving us rules, like things to do, right? So that's not even like a sibling relationship anymore, right? Um, yeah. We don't really see that in this day and age. But with him and his immediate younger brother, like number number two brother, my second uncle, they definitely had some sibling rivalry thing going on, right? And the thing was my dad, as the, you know, classic situation, like just like I described, oldest sibling, very neurotic, quiet, you know, not outgoing, but follows all the rules, yeah. right? And eventually becomes the older brother to everybody kind of thing, right? Like he, yeah. him, his younger brother, much more, you know, a little bit more like social, you know, as an adult, drank regularly, smoked regularly, always like kind of pushing the limits <laughs> of what's acceptable rules wise. Right. Yeah. And yeah. not as good of a student. Right. But figured out his own way to get through life and enjoyed his life. But he was so we'd, we'd meet up. Right. As you know, as they were getting into their 70s. Right. We'd meet up for like family dinner and then invariably they would talk yeah. about what life was like growing up. And my uncle's main story, he would always come back to the story and that he remembered and my dad had forgotten, which was that one time somehow the two of them as boys ended up with a pair of boxing gloves, right? So my brother, had, oh, no. my, my dad had a pair of boxing gloves, his brother had a pair of boxing gloves. And then you hear the younger one tell the story about how 
he was like so determined just to give my dad a beating that day with the boxing gloves and whopped him real hard, like several shots. And then my dad has no memory of this, right? But his brother has to bring it up at every family gathering. And it's just, an, it's, it's awesome because they can, they can laugh about it as adults. But you also get the feeling yeah. that, you know, that's sometimes what it's like with your older brother, right? The guy is annoying, right? And then obviously for me and my sister here in this story, we're like, oh, what an awesome story, right? Someone finally giving dad his comeuppance. <laughs> You can tell this was a pivotal moment in this guy's life that he's remembering so much. <laughs> Meanwhile, your dad was, due to his concussion, doesn't seem to be able to remember the event at all. Now, is there anything else to say about well, the, the ugly? Since we the ugly. ugly. So th- this, there's a lot to say, but but I feel like it's a very complicated issue. So siblings can go awry over time, right? And it happens a lot. Yeah. It's... I see it in the medical office. I see it in our family, you know, in the family tree. You always hear about these stories, right? There's these two siblings that don't get along, right? One sibling lives on the other side of the of the continent, right? They don't come to family gatherings or something, right? Or you'll hear about, yeah. you know, siblings fighting over the inheritance. That's a common one, right? The inheritance doesn't get written clearly. Yeah. Who gets the cottage at the end of the day becomes like a bone that everyone has to pick. I feel like it's a shame because as a parent, you know, as a parent, you're looking at your children growing up and they're they're hanging out, they're cool, they're chilling with each other. You would like that to continue, right? So it is kind of heartbreaking to think yeah. that, you know, sometimes when they become adults and the parents aren't there anymore, that this thing just falls apart completely. A person who was one of your best friends yeah. growing up suddenly, for various reasons, you know, they cannot coexist. With our last few minutes, then, do you have... Any strategies or things that you guys do at home to try to avoid the ugly from uh, from developing in your kids? I think one of the keys is you have to make time for your siblings. The nice thing about siblings is because of that history and that time, you need to put that time in and keep putting in that time. Eventually, you realize a lot of these things that are really grating at the moment or the things that are stressing your relationship at the moment, they will pass, right? And the the best analogy is the parents and yeah. uh, the best analogy is the spouse analogy because how many times have we had major blow-ups with our partners and you think this is irreparable or yeah. emotionally we're so charged up but you know what life goes on you have breakfast the next day and eventually you move on but i do think that if anything spent being able to continue to put time into yeah. relationships is the thing that helps all relationships get better, whether it's with your sibling, with your partner, with your parents, with your children, right? Like that is the thing you got to put yeah. time into. And if you are in one yeah. of these ugly relationships, try to put time. Eventually bridges get built again. So for us as parents trying to help our kids, some of these, this, this would translate then into uh, try to make sure that you actually set time where the kids are going to have to play with each other and interact with each other. And if you've got more than two, then it sometimes means you have to uh, do different pairings uh, and do uh, things where they're all together. Um, I think it's important to do that. I think it's also important to try to make some individual time for your kids as well mm-hmm. um, and let them know that, you know, sometimes I'm going to spend time just with you. Sometimes I'm going to spend time just with your siblings. Uh, with your with your other sibling, right? So that everybody knows that uh, it's not a matter of there being a certain amount of love in a pie, and you you, you only get thin slices. It's, you know, the more kids there are in the family, the more the more the love grows. It doesn't have a boundary in that way. Uh, another tip, I guess, that I try to keep in mind is this idea of uh, avoiding that. Uh, giving them these identities, imposing these identities on them to say, "Oh, look, you you did well in school, so you are the smart one." Uh, which then uh, either is going to make the other kid feel like, well, now I have to compete to be the smart one. I have to prove I'm the smart one. Or worse, then say, uh, oh, well, then that one's the smart one. Then I'm the dumb one, and I'm going to fill the role of the dumb one. Um, and maybe the last little bit of thing that I try to keep in mind with my kids, uh, if one of them is in something like hockey or art or drama or whatever activity you put them in and they show a talent for it, then... Great, that may get the other kids interested in it and get them to do it. Uh, but I, I'll try to give each kid an opportunity to grow their own interest. So, you know, for the younger kids, I try to f- say, well, what are the other kids not doing that we could put you in? So this other one is doing uh, piano lessons. Hey, are you interested in doing some other kind of musical instrument? Uh, I think giving them each the opportunity to maybe discover something that they could be good at that is all their own is healthy for them as well. So there's a few quick tips of the things that I've tried to do. Check back with me in another 20 years and I'll tell you if it worked. (laughs) 
We'll check back in 40 years when they're bickering over their inheritance and they realize that uh, Dr. Harmon doesn't make that much money as a pediatrician. And then we'll see how it goes. Did you say in four years? You think I'm going to die in 40? 40. Oh, 40. <laughs> 40. I think I'm going to live longer than that. <laughs> I want to. Yeah, but that's when people start talking inheritance is around uh -huh. that time. They don't start talking about it until after the fact. In 40 years when I'm 84, it's going to be an all-out competition for each of them to prove who loves me the most. And that's very much <laughs> going to determine who gets what. <laughs> the, the, the inheritance is a thing. Like I, I guess at some point we'll talk about this someday on the podcast. But it is a huge thing. It happens in so many families where the family relationship, sibling thing breaks down because of this, ultimately. My, my mother is always clear with us. Look, there's I, I have a certain amount of stuff and I am leaving it to you split four ways down the middle, uh, <laughs> period. So don't, uh, don't start thinking about what you're going to do that you earn deserve more or less or that thing. I have four kids. I have this much split down the middle. There you go. And I think that's probably a wise way to do it. It is, but it always gets compounded by something like, you know, you'll, you'll have four kids. One of them is doing really well financially. They don't need money, right? One of them yeah, isn't not, doing as all well. getting split. It's not a matter. <laughs> it's not, it's not a communist thing based on the means and the needs of the people. It's, <laughs> this is how much there is. This is how much you get. You, you earned it by being born, not by doing anything else. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There is a strong argument to be made that as parents, we should just spend all our money that we made in our lifetime, that we we spent enough on them growing up, that we don't need to pass on the leftover to them when we die. And that oh, you should just give it, give it to a yeah. charity at that point or, or throw it somewhere else that you want it to go rather than giving your kids one last handout. Do they need any more handouts at that point? I disagree with that last bit. Uh, you know, what charity can you rely on to like really use that money the way you wanted it to be used? I'm of course give money to charity, but uh, uh, do it while you're alive. First of all, if you're gonna have money left over when you die, my philosophy would be spend the money on the things you want to be spent on, and spend it on the people you want to be spent on while you're still alive. And then there's gonna be something left over when you die, and split that four ways with your kids because you should all have four kids. Uh, that's that's my advice to people. But uh, you're going to uh, sp spend it on them while they're alive, and then at the end, you give it all to the bank or leave it to the government or something like that. Uh, I don't, what about, I don't what about if you have an asset that cannot be split easily, like a cottage? This is a common scenario. Like A lot of baby boomers have this cottage. They pass away, and there's this nice vacation home sitting there, right? And they have four children. The four children all have great memories of growing up in this place. And yeah. one option is you could sell the home so no one gets it and they each take, you know, X amount of money. But the other yeah. option is to actually give it to one of them. You have to give it to one of them at that point. So how do you pick? That'd be something that uh, you either tell them right off the bat, yeah, that, saw, that, that, that cottage is getting sold before I die and <laughs> uh, being split four ways. Uh, or you decide before you die, okay, let's agree right now. What are we doing at the cottage? Set that up and so it's done um, before you die. Mm. Not, not that people have a verbal discussion of what they might do, then you die, and then now it's left to, to be dealt with. I mean, there's one approach. The other approach you could take is, when I'm dead, I don't care because I'm dead. <laughs> so then you could just leave no will whatsoever and have a free-for-all and be like, ah, who cares if they fought each other when I was dead? I just wanted harmony while I was alive. <laughs> From that point of view, you could secretly tell each kid they're getting everything. <laughs> and then at the end, they find out there was no plan. At the end of the day, they're going to find out when you die that you blew it all on comic books right before you left. And there's nothing to be had. Well, there you go. I hope that people who listen to this episode have a much thorough, deeper, meaningful understanding of sibling rivalry at the end of this hour. That's right. The take-home point is that siblings are like spouses that you can't have sex with, and so relationships get really complicated with them. On that note, we will see you in a week. Bye, folks.